happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 211 for March 3rd, 2021. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, Montana State Virtual School, located on the beautiful University of Montana campus here in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And joining me tonight, as always, good evening, Dr. West Fryer. How are you this evening, sir? Good evening, Jason. I am doing well. We are anticipating uh, a few more days of this week, a four-day week next week, and then spring break so it's hard to believe that february is over already and like yeah it was 72 degrees today so yeah two weeks ago we were in an arctic blast and you know now we're uh breaking out the beach towels and uh ready to to get in not not quite but anyway it is uh we're ready for ready for spring here so i am the technology integration and innovation specialist at the cassidy school here in oklahoma city and I am, where are you joining from to, uh, virtually tonight? I, I don't have any fancy background. Is that a University of Montana lovely lake or what is uh, that? It, it is not. Uh, behind me is a Giant Springs Park, which is located, it's a state park located in Great Falls, Montana. And it features what is either the shortest river or the second shortest river in the, in the United States, which is the Roe River, which is a tiny river located in uh, Giant Springs Park. This is a place that I love to go when I was growing up. Cool. That's good. So, folks, not only do you get some tech news and some analysis, you get a little Montana geography, um, perhaps, each week. So if he's not going to be, you know, tuning in from Cupertino or, you know, various and other sundry <laughs> digital and technological places. <laughs> there you go. Well, I'm not just here to provide backgrounds, Wes. What is the EdTech Situation Room all about? We are here to talk about the past week or so's technology news through an educational lens, provide our bit of analysis, and continue to try and stitch together the pieces of trends that are not only affecting classrooms and teachers, but affecting our society and economy and world. So we're here to basically solve all the problems. And uh, the main one who does it, I just bring the problems. Jason provides the answers. So we'll look forward to more of that this week. <laughs> well, looking at our topics tonight, which, by the way, we always share our links, our source material, so you can go back and read more if you'd like to. Sometimes we nail the analysis. Sometimes we don't. But you can go to our website, edtechsr.com slash links, and you can see the massive size Google document, which is in the hundreds of pages now that shows every link uh, that we have uh, used going all the way back to our first episode uh, in January 2016. And tonight, if we get to every article, we'll be talking about Apple, Microsoft, Google News, some security and privacy news, social media, the weekly topic that we like to call the tech correction, freedom of expression, climate change and energy, our miscellaneous category, and of course, We'll end our episode with our Geeks of the Week. But, Wes, where would you like to start us out tonight? Well, Alex, why don't we go for a privacy for 500? Um, I would actually like to talk about Clubhouse a little bit. So these were articles that I had last week, which we didn't have time to get to. Um, the first one is an op-ed in The Guardian um, that is by John Naughton. It's entitled, Why Hot New Social App Clubhouse Spells Nothing But Trouble. And I will, at the outset, um, admit that I am a, a, a am a participant in the Clubhouse app, which is still iOS only and invitation only. So it 
sort of feels a little bit like Facebook was back in the day when, ooh, you had to be at a university and be, you know, invited and all these things as the buzz, you know, grew. But it's like a live talk, a live radio app, basically. Um, and the thing, in the, and, and as much as we talk about privacy and everything else, I did not really balk. I was excited to get the invitation, oh, to join. But the immediate thing you, you have to do is grant access to your contacts. Now, contacts are actually what makes this so powerful because I'm um, pretty sure that I joined with my Twitter account, but then it also, I'm pretty sure, got access to thousands uh, of contacts that I have on my phone. It'll pop up throughout the day. And I've joined a couple and I've participated in, in a couple now. Um, I've listened to a few that I, I haven't participated in. But you, you're you able to see folks who, who you follow and are in your contacts. Oh, look, you know, this person that you know is talking now. And so as a notification and get your attention and entice you to tap this button and then join live, um, it is really effective. So this article from John Naughton is pointing that out to say, hey, everybody, um, you know, this is probably an app that's illegal, by the way, under GDPR, as far as its behavior forcing you to share your, your contacts like that. Um, it points out that like invitations are, were at the time this article was written, which was uh, a mere, you know, a couple weeks ago on February 20th, uh, going on eBay for about 90 bucks. Um, but there's also unencrypted recordings and there's a reference to another article and that's the, the internet observatory articles, cyber policy center at Stanford, um, that I've also put in the, in the links, uh, Renee DeResta, who is no upside on Twitter. And if you don't follow her, just go do that right now. Uh, because in terms of disinformation and, uh, you know, media literacy and especially especially tracking the nefarious and malicious impact of disinformation and weaponized social media she is uh, a top 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 researcher um this talks about how there's a shanghai based company named agora that actually provides the back end support to clubhouse and so there could be you know access that the, that the chinese government has um to to the recordings or to the data probably not right now audio stored in the us but the big warning and this is again something that i'm kind of like holding my my head down about is that even though I know you, you, we should really be careful when we think about, oh, can you have my contacts? Oh, sure. You know, meta information is really a big deal in terms of what it discloses. And contacts are too, because these programs then can connect the dots and say, okay, well, look at if, I mean, if it has a copy of everyone's contacts who's in the app, I mean, that's an incredible web of social connections that can then be, you know, utilized for, for different kinds of purposes. So, Jason, are you on Clubhouse? Would you like me to send you an invitation? And what do you think about the whole issue about pr privacy and should we be concerned? Because there's thousands of people that are on this, and I'm not sure how many people are, are concerned about it. Well, I mean, I, I guess I would start with, yes, I would take a Clubhouse invitation from you, sir. Um, and in part because I, you know, I think that I have a professional curiosity on uh, how these systems work and and also because our students will end up on them at some point. And one of the things that I think, um, to be honest, has been a real um, 
a problem uh, early days of, of social media platforms is when they were mostly dominated by students. I think we were doing a disservice to our students by not joining them on those platforms. Now, it's true that we tend to chase students away on platforms, right? I mean, Facebook used to be the place where parents weren't, and it was a dangerous location. Then the moms took over Facebook, and then it became something different. And then the political uh, out there took over Facebook, and it became something else. But, you know, obviously, uh, uh, People under the age of 25 tend to shift to different networks as they become, I guess, overpopulated or regulated by adults. But that's one reason why that I think it's important for us to explore these new pieces. When it comes to your question about privacy and, and concerns related to that, yeah, I am concerned about, about those sorts of things in part because, you know, there, there isn't always an indication of, of who has access to that data, where it's stored. Uh, even if you have a general indication of that, of which we, we seem to have some of that with Clubhouse, it, is troublesome, I think, that your data that could be private of sorts, right? And in that, what I mean by private of sorts is that it's not entirely clear um, that that data that you would you know exchange on an app like Clubhouse, you'd want it to get out. My guess is these conversations lean towards things that you wouldn't be publicly broadcasting um, and that you would take some, um, I guess, security knowing that it is limited to contacts ish right i mean that's the frame frame of that um but we'll find out more soon i'm assuming yeah yeah i mean it's 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 public in terms of anybody can join a room you can schedule a room uh you can also just pop on your phone and say hey create a room and then all these people get notified it's really pretty amazing I, and i'll say this with Okay, so the front company of this, I guess, is based in Silicon Valley. I don't know if the whole company is, is Chinese-based, but this the back end, which is evidently the real brains of it, is, is Shanghai-based. Like, TikTok is genius, right? If you want to collect um, facial recognition data, uh, like, you've the, the creators of that have absolutely, you know, ingeniously leveraged social psychology of you know, teenagers and, and mainly young people um, to, to harvest a, a, an incredible bounty of facial recognition data in terms of how much stuff, uh, how much content is being poured into that. Yep. Similarly, I think the designers of this are freaking geniuses. I mean, they have really put together an, a unique platform. It leverages existing social connections that you have. It's user-created content, right? So they're not out there, you know, like YouTube. I mean, YouTube does produce original content now. But, you know, it's creator-based. It's user-generated content. And it is being done in this attention economy that we live in where it it makes a persuasive case. I mean, there's so much information. It's so fractured. It's so, you know, we're, we're just inundated with opportunities to get information and to watch things. But these, you know, these notifications, if you have them on, which again, I still do, you know, Hey, you know, Carl Hooker is talking about, you know, ed tech and, you know, remote learning hacks and things like that. I mean, I actually saw that he was going to be doing this, signed up, put it on my calendar. And yesterday I joined, it wasn't just like, Oh, it popped up, but it's, I agree with you totally that we need to be, aware and, and, and in the mix of, of where our students are and where young people are. Um, I've had a chance. I've just started, we've started a new trimester. And so some of my check-in questions with my kids uh, this week have been, um, you know, YouTube channels they watch or, or just movies or TV series that they like. 
And it's very helpful and interesting to get a little window. And I had to basically also remind, hey, this has got to be family friendly, guys, because it'll, you know, anyway, it's just it, whatever you learn about the kids. It is interesting to see what they're watching and, you know, in some cases with parents, et cetera. But anyway, um, you know, we need to we need to be aware. But at the same time, I think we need to be savvy. So thinking about, you know, what is my threshold of trust? for giving access to literally all my contacts. Because if I was soberly and with just greater in advance thinking, you know, can, can going to consider, huh, here's a new company that you don't really know that much about. Do you want to give them every single contact, which is like cell phone number, you know, email address, it's everything, right? Do you want to just give that to a company that, you have no idea what they're going to do. And we've been through this before. We, you know, people, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. So why should I care? But, you know, you've got an article I'm, I'm hopeful we'll get to that talks about cyber attack and the future possibility of that. And, you know, the, if it's, if the data is out there, it is hackable and it is weaponizable by somebody. So I'm enjoying Clubhouse. I have not created my own room yet. I think I probably will this next week. I might talk about barbecue, actually. <laughs> you can talk about whatever you want. And, and Carl mentioned something about that. And um, anyway, it's... It, and I'm hearing people's voices and getting to interact with folks that, like, there's no way I would have just, like, you know, before the faculty meeting on Wednesday, you know, heard some ideas, heard some voices, like, it's really cool. I mean, it's almost a holodeck. I don't know. It's just, isn't, it's just amazing. The, the telepresence possibilities, which we have today, right? Our men's group that meets on Friday mornings for our church. Like I would have never dreamed we were going to be completely on zoom for months. Like there was a period of time where we weren't, I mean, this is a group that the average age is considerably, you know, older than, than my, I'm the young guy, uh, by quite a bit. Um, and so anyway, and doing this, I mean, even when we started Jason, however many years ago, it mm -hmm. was just crazy yep. that, you know, we could just, Hey, flip on our computers and here we are. I mean, it, like literally it's like, I mean, too bad we can't share the beer, but you know, we don't, by the way, we don't really usually drink on the show. Who knows? <laughs> but anyway, uh, <laughs> it's just, it's crazy. And this is really good too. I mean, there are so many, so many sides of today's modern technology landscape that I think are wonderful. Um, shout out to Peggy George in our chat room. She's uh, shared an Ed Week article that is talking about what educators need to know about that app. And I will get that actual link and we'll include that in the show notes as well. So anyway, it's just, there's a whole, there, this is important to talk about. And I would say it's important to talk with teachers about, because this isn't just the kids, right? There's a lot, but, but it's still an early adopter community. And that's something that's also interesting, right? Because as more and more folks, Hey, everybody's on Facebook. Hey, there's just all kinds of people, you know, on these platforms. Um, it's interesting as you, is you see kind of early adopters, you know, trying things. And anyway, the, the dynamics are, anyway, it's, it's, it's exciting and there's stuff to be learned, but there also, there also are important privacy issues that we need to be concerned about. And I would say like one of the things, having done some speeches in the past about preventing self-destructive behaviors among teenage youth, uh, 
you know, like role playing what you're going to do. Let's say if you're offered, you know, alcohol or drugs or something, right. Or whatever the situation is. Uh, it's great to think about that in advance. And if you can even plan in advance what you're going to do, that helps you when you get in that situation, you know, not just be caught off guard and have to think off the cuff, but like, oh yeah, I've already rehearsed this. I know what I'm going to say. I think there's a case. I don't know. <laughs> exactly how to translate that here, but for privacy and let's think about apps. Okay. You've installed a new app. The new app prompts you, can I have access to all your contacts? Like that is a decision. It's so easy on the app. Yes. And then every contact in your, in your address book has just been whisked off to Shanghai or whatever. And I'm not saying that, you know, every Chinese company is, is malicious. Of course they're not. But <laughs> there, there's, there is an incredibly hostile, you know, uh, cybercrime community out there that is going to remain. And we need to think about these things. Yep. Absolutely true. Well, one article that I would also say under privacy, and then I, I want to move on to that security article because I think it's pretty great. Um, there's been a lot of, we, we reported on this earlier, I think it was late last year, that Google is working on eliminating third-party cookies uh, from its its Chrome browser structure. And for those unaware, a third-party cookie is basically what allows things like advertising agencies to track you from site to site. The reason why you go to Amazon and you search for hiking boots and then suddenly on Facebook, you know, two days later, it's trying to sell you hiking boots, not just from Amazon, but maybe from multiple websites as you search uh, across the internet. And obviously uh, huge privacy implications to that. And in fact, it's the reason why a lot of people will open up private or incognito browser windows to do shopping because they don't want to be chased down by their purchases or if they're purchasing something that they don't necessarily want to see over and over and over again and, you know, insert uh, your version of that here. Uh, that's obviously of, of concern. And already Firefox and Safari in, in different ways have already eliminated third-party cookie uh, uh, use. Um, it's at different levels, and it's not necessarily as effective across both platforms. But the one thing that a lot of people are keeping an eye on with Google is Google will probably have some kind of tracking technology because you know, they are an advertising platform, right? Google is an advertising company, um, not just an information company. And a lot of people, you know, if you if you look at other articles about this, there's everything from applause to Google for doing this, taking this step, which I think is is a good step for for security and privacy, uh, to criticism that whatever Google comes up with next will likely be very self-serving. I don't necessarily believe that personally, and in fact, I would argue that Google has a lot of interest to nail this, uh, just because in 2021, there's such heightened awareness of, of, of privacy that if they can develop something that allows there to be an economic model to allow some companies to continue to exist, but in a way less creepy way, that would probably be a good thing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one of the articles that we shared about this uh, a couple of weeks ago talked about how Google could come out to be a big winner <clears throat> with this in terms of just not having this landscape of all these different third-party companies. It is helpful to visualize this. And just as it's it's hard, and and I think few of us have a really – like 360 comprehensive 
perspective on how hostile overall the computing environment is on the web today in terms of cyber attacks and, and, and just maliciousness, like the number of trackers that are trying to get your stuff, your information can be crazy. And so I was just noticing that my uBlock origin extension, which I absolutely love in the Chrome browser, um, you know, will show you on a particular page how many different advertising things have been blocked. I actually would love, you know, Manoush Samarodi, Jason, I both really enjoyed her podcast. And, I, you know, she's, I think, back with in maybe WNYC or NPR, somebody. She's she's gotten picked up by somebody and, and is not on her independent road again. But there was a privacy app that she shared a while back, and maybe we even have it in our show notes. And it it, it would just, I think it would work on Firefox, but it would show you all the things that like Facebook believed about you and that tracked about you. And it was making that stuff visible. And so here's a shout out for, or not a shout out, I don't know, but whatever. Here's a request for help. If anybody out there listening knows of tools like this, I can see that as a wonderful media literacy, you know, mini lesson with students as far as, as increasing the visibility with this. We've said it before on the show, the things that Apple is doing with regard to requiring developers to put uh, a, a much fuller, you know, disclosure document out there for here's how we're collecting your data and here's how it's going to be used. That is moving, I think, the the uh, flag or the torch forward in terms of privacy. Google's efforts here are as well. That Verge article that you put in says uh, the subtitle is Google says it wants a privacy first web and you know, I want to continue to believe in the goodness of Google. We've been talking a little bit about pivots in yeah. Google and changes and things. And I mean, you know, there's, there is weird stuff that who knows we can't, we don't know what's going on with, with AI researchers and the reasons people were fired and some, some other weird things. Google's a huge company too, by the way, but I really continue to love using Google's products to trust them as a company. That's important, right? Those are the smart speakers that we have. They're, they're for Google. And there's a reason for that is I, I trust them. And so I, think that this is a genuine effort. It also will serve them well, because if they're not going to be proactive on the privacy side, then that could that could really harm them. So good to see this happening. And we we all need to be more attuned to our own privacy issues in terms of the decisions we make via, you know, whether it's Clubhouse or whatever, in terms of what we share and we choose to agree to. But I, I believe we also need to be aware of the, the advocacy which needed, the, the education which is needed for policymakers and the advocacy which is needed to try to help push things in a way that is, that is consumer, um, protection, uh, you know, is pro, pro, pro consumer protection. In other words, I don't think we just want to give the, the companies of the, uh, surveillance capitalism economy, you know, unfettered reign to just do whatever they want with, with our, with our data, with our privacy. Um, we, we need consumer advocates and we need to remember that privacy, as some people have contended, is really the foundation of all rights. And if we're not being strong advocates and defenders of privacy, we risk, I'm not saying it's just going to be a slippery slope and it's all going downhill tomorrow, but it is a, it is a critical piece and it's something that perhaps we've taken for granted for a long time and we need to be more, more vigilant about defending. Absolutely. 
Well, uh, shall we move on to some other topics? Let me just real quick. Uh, Peggy George asked for clarification, the kind of tool and app you're looking for. I'm looking for something that makes it visible in terms of trackers and just how many things right now. Privacy Badger might do it. I know that uBlock Origin will show you the number of things blocked that are like advertiser cookies. But we're talking about how many things like when you just visit a web page, boom, they're they're tracking you. Just like Jason said, that's how we're tracked across the web, across apps. It's because of those things. So something that makes those, you know, visible and you're like, oh, my gosh, look at that. Can you believe there's that many things on such and on the such and such news website? You know, that's that's tracking me. Right. And I can say that one, it's not quite it just because it, it's, it's a little more limited in application. The privacy, the DuckDuckGo privacy browser in iOS does something somewhat close to that. So as an example, if I go to CNN.com, one of the things it will do after I go to that website is it will rate ultimately like, uh, the amount of things that it's blocking, right? And it gives a, a, an A through F rating. But if I click on those things, it will tell me that there are 24 trackers that were blocked at CNN.com. So for example, uh, at CNN.com, there's Google, there's Amazon, there's an Adobe tracker, there's something called Trade Desk, the Index Exchange, LiveRamp, Comscore, Salesforce, Sovereign Holdings, the Nielsen Company, Outbrain, uh, Integral Ad Service, Fastly, uh, Yieldmo, um, Am I going to really read all these? I think I'm going to Chartbeat, uh, uh, Merkle, Blockthrough, Segment.io, and Bounce Exchange. That's on CNN.com. And they rated that a C, by the way. So that's average, which oh, is terrifying. So I, I put a link in there. So duckduckgo.com uh, slash app allows you to add to Chrome, download from the Apple App Store, get it on Google Play. You can add it to your mobile device or desktop browser. Uh, yeah, that looks to be that kind of tool. So there you go. We've got a geek of the week before the geek of the week. There it is. All right. Where should we go next, sir? Okay. Let's talk some maybe, well, this article is too good. Uh, Axios reported on February 28th, um, uh, that the, uh, a, a cyber CEO, this is the CEO of FireEye, which is a cybersecurity firm, uh, talks about how the, Next war, right? And so whatever that looks like is likely to involve a significant cyber war in addition to more traditional methods of warfare. And because of cybersecurity, it's likely to involve Americans, uh, everyday Americans in this process. So in other words, we are all um, uh, at risk if, if we end up in, uh, some kind of conflict with a, a, another country. And, uh, the gentleman that's talking here, his name is Kevin, uh, Mandia. He is the CEO of cybersecurity for, for FireEye. Um, and, uh, this is Axios on HBO. So there's a, a show that goes with this that I've not looked up yet, although it's on my list to do so probably this weekend. And the clip that, that's on this website is, uh, only a minute in, in 40 seconds long. But there, the, the, the main thing he talks about is that the bottom line is, is that data that is potentially hackable is being hacked now. It's not that if you, uh, aren't being hacked, um, uh, or that if you have something that, that's potentially hackable, it could be hacked. It's that it is getting hacked now. And as an example of this, um, I've turned on something that I'm actually thinking about turning off, um, even though it's quite convenient. I use uh, a number of two-factor authentication schemes um, uh, over a couple of different platforms. We talked about 2FA or two-factor authentication a couple of times on the show. 
Um, but one of the things I use for Microsoft stuff and, and most of my work stuff is in here, um, is, uh, the authenticator, the Microsoft authenticator, which is a very nice, very well set up app. And one of the things you can do with that is do what's called passwordless entry, which means that all you need to do is type your email address in and then you authenticate via your phone, right? You got to be logged in and iOS makes me face ID, uh, before I can, uh, I can authenticate to that. But I noticed something a couple of weeks ago, and it's been kind of terrifying to me uh, ever since the number of times this has happened, is that someone tries to get into my personal Microsoft account probably 25 times a week, and it happens at odd times of the hour. Um, it's definitely not me, right, because I um, uh, uh, am not uh, engaged in, in Microsoft stuff at 2 o'clock in the morning, but there is a way to review recent activity, um, and in fact, uh, to see this list, it's going to make me, you know, face ID, which I just did. Um, and to give you a sense of what this looks like is that um, one hour ago, there was an unsuccessful sign-in. Yesterday at 10.15 p.m., there was an unsuccessful sign-in. Yesterday morning at, at 4.20 in the morning, there was an unsuccessful sign-in. And it shows me where it's located at. This one is in Chicago. In this case, an incorrect password was entered. Um, this one is in Colombia, incorrect password entered. This one is in Russia, incorrect password entered. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's interesting to me that, um, uh, that, that my account's being accessed on this regular of a basis. And, you know, the thing I would tell you is that you, you should be utilizing, um, any security a layer you can because if, if, if in any way your account has, has a compromise on it, right? You're using the same pass, password and it appears in a password database. Um, you're using a poor password or a well-known password like one, two, three, four, five or QWERTY or ABC XYZ or any of the many variants of bad passwords. What Mr. Uh, Mandia is arguing is that your data is is at risk now, not and it will be hacked at some point. But if we ever get to the point where we end up in a conflict with a country like Russia, which has a very well known uh, hacking architecture uh, in their country, uh, regular U.S. citizens um, would be at risk. So, Wes, I want to get your thoughts on this, but then also I have a school uh, twist that I want to talk about here in a second. So first off, the gentleman you're talking about in this article is the CEO of FireEye. FireEye is the company that discovered solar winds. All right. Without that, this is, and, and I know we're all tired of hearing the word unprecedented right after 2020, but you know, the level of intrusion that, that the solar winds hack, which was a nation state sponsored Russia or China. I, I don't know which, but it was nation state. Very, very sophisticated, not only into a number, a, a large number, like thousands of companies, but the United States government, the Department of Commerce, the Department of Energy. Um, actually, I'm not sure if Department of Defense is included in that, but probably we're talking huge for months and just like, oh, my gosh. Uh, all right. So where do I start with this response? Um we need to all be thinking about emergency preparedness. And I'm not saying this as a prepper and I don't, you know, I'm not just going to the gun show this weekend. I mean, I, I, I think I'm a, a fairly reasonable person about this. Like I also, you know, I got the emergency preparedness merit badge in scouts, right? You prepare for things. I mean, I, we do, we've got like, you know, 
how many gallons, probably 30 gallons of water that, that's in our, you know, in our garage. That was important, by the way, with the Arctic freeze. We had people with, you know, their water pipes that froze. And, and so we, and, and my daughter just told me that her, <clears throat> our physics instructor that also teaches meteorology at our school said, we might be lined up for one of the more severe, you know, tornado seasons here because of La Nina and things. You know, we live in Oklahoma. We live in the central United States. We have a tornado threat, but there's all kinds of different natural disasters. One of the things without become, you know, going over the edge of, of prepper crazy, um, is like, <laughs> listen to, uh, the, the book lights out. Um, I wanted, I keep on wanting to say Tom Brokaw, Ted Koppel, Ted Koppel's book lights out. Go listen to it. Okay. Because the electrical grid in the United States is very susceptible. And we just had case study number one that's going to be in college tech books or whatever. And, and, you know, not just looking at, 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 at policy, but, but looking at the engineering of this, of what just happened in Texas, because we, and I don't have articles in the show, but we were just evidently a few minutes away from an absolutely catastrophic failure of the power grid in Texas, which could have required, you know, weeks and weeks to bring back online. We need to think about how our families and our homes would be affected by a cyber attack, by a, uh, an extended loss of power and, and the power grid. And, you know, if you go too far down this road, you're like, well, I can't, I can't prepare for that. Um, but it, the more that we, like I was a tech director for four years. And so watching, and I still have, you know, some access to these, you know, Google admin logs, you know, Jason, you, you may as well that say, Hey, there was a specific, specific, suspicious login, or, you know, this particular account was, you know, sent this many, um, you know, identified spams or phishing reports or whatever. Very, very hostile computing environment. We need to think practically about this. Uh, and we need to, we need to be taking some, some sensible proactive measures, um, to, to try to be prepared for the fact that we could be affected by a variety of natural disasters, which could also include, you know, a cyber attack that is going to affect things. So what is the school twist, Jason? Well, uh, I mean, that's why you need to have your security locked down in your school, right? Like we, we saw this a couple of years ago and in, including some schools involved in Montana, you know, it's relatively low value data, right? That, that that's in schools uh, in that, you know, what it's not like we're impacting power plants when you hack into power plants, right? That's a bad deal. Schools are a different deal, but the sheer shock value and terror value of, of school data would make that terrible, right? And so, um, no one's perfect, right? I know people that are very, uh, uh, tech savvy IT directors at small, medium, large size school districts that would admit to you that they're not perfect, but you need to be, at least be thoughtful about data. And do what you can to add security layers to your school district. Force teachers to use things like two-factor authentication. Make sure the passwords are changed and that they're good passwords. Explain to teachers the importance of making sure that there's a code on your phone if they're logging in to a school email account on their phone. And that they are careful uh, if they're in a coffee shop and they've got a school laptop, um, you know, make sure that when they shut the lid, the password uh, has to pop back on so that if the pass, if the laptop gets lifted, they don't have access to that school data. Yeah. And honestly, your school should be using a mobile device manager today that pushes yeah. that out and you just require the, I mean, and that'll, that'll cause some, some folks to be upset, but 
I wouldn't do it at, you know, 30 seconds of inactivity. You have to put in the password. Um, but, but do have that initiate, af, you know, after a while. And yep, layer, layered defense. This is how security works. Physical, physical security works as a, as a defense in layers. And so does cybersecurity. Yep. The same kinds of, of, um, uh, of, of approaches work. And, and the pen test is a penetration test. Uh, which security professionals will do to your home or your place of business. And then you can also have them, you know, do that on a cyber level. And those kinds of things are really important. And it's not something that I believe we should just relegate to, oh, yeah, they'll, you know, the school will take care of that or, or whatever. Uh, we need to be doing it at a personal level. Jason's yep. talked about multiple times, and I've done some of this, although it's still not complete, using the watchtower and other features of password managers like 1Password and LastPass and the Chrome browser, because these tools can now identify, hey, here's how many passwords you've duplicated. Here's how many passwords you've actually you know, continued to use when they're on the dark web and when they've been compromised. The other thought that I had, Jason, as you were talking about this, so and Peggy will appreciate this because it's a K-12 online story. Back in the day of K-12 online, we started in 2006 and we went for like 10 years or whatever. We had this thing called a cluster map and that would show where, you know, people are pulling up your web page and on your blog or whatever. Ooh, it was so exciting. You know, I mean, I remember one time I had, oh gosh, what is it? Mutiny on a bounty. There's some like island in the middle of the south pacific we had finally figured out look somebody there has an internet connection they're reading my blog well at some point you we realize a lot of these are bots <laughs> they're not real people who are coming here reading your website and like the realization now is they're not just you know um uh, what am i trying to say neutral and non-threatening benign bots they're actually attack bots. <laughs> They're literally, in some cases, you know, looking for vulnerabilities, and then they will attack websites. And yeah, um, so we need we need ways to help people without just you know ridiculously trying to scare people. Uh, and and I know that people get tired of that, like a chicken little sort of thing. Of yeah, another hack. I you know yawn. Um, we need, we need people to, uh, take, take security seriously in the same way that when you go to another country, I know you've traveled a lot, Jason, mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure you take security seriously in terms of where you put your money and how you have things separated and yep. where you go and where you don't go. Like you just have to be smart because you can be taken advantage of. And that is something that anybody who has done, uh, probably any amount of international travel is 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 savvy too and i think a lot of us are just kind of kind of naive and we need to be a little bit more proactive on the security front yep absolutely all right well let's do some maybe more like like techie nerdy news here because hey that's fun um apple so just an update from last week we talked about last week how uh m1 mac so that's the the macbook pro m1 the macbook air m1 and my understanding it also impacts um the mac mini m1 there's that's an Peggy, issue that's Peggy's computer by the way yep that's Peggy's computer and um there's apparently an issue where m1 macs are very aggressively writing to SSD drives. And the reason why that's an issue is because SSD drives have a, 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 a work life that they can only be written so many times before they ultimately fail. Um, the, the reason why I wanted to show this article off, and this is from Znet on March 1st, is two, two reasons. Number one, it's because this has now made it into the mainstream media. Last week, 
I shared a post um, from a tech forum, um, and now this 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 is getting into the mainstream media. So I wanted to show that this is something that's not just you know nerds wringing their hands. It it, it seems to be making into the mainstream consciousness of, of of Mac reporters. But I also wanted to note something that I mentioned last week is that I don't think this is something to per se worry about from the standpoint of Apple is going to do something about this, right? And if for some reason your M1 Mac, which you've had for two months now, if it eats away 50% of the lifespan of your SSD drive in two months, and then they get a fix for it, but then it ultimately diminishes uh, the lifespan, Apple's going to take care of you. I mean, they're they're famous. They, they've had a lot of screw-ups over the years uh, in regards to hardware issues, and they always take care of, of their customers. And so that that's confirmed on this uh, ZDNet uh, article. Um, but I also wanted to note something that uh, it's just super interesting to me. And we're in the middle of a legislative session right now in Montana. Um, we sometimes call it the circus when it's in town because it only happens every two years. And it's, and of course, uh, <laughs> um, uh, Madam S, I guess, uh, wanted to, to, to me to know that she was listening. But the thing about uh, uh, legislatures is that they sometimes take on national, international issues and get the focus there. Arizona has a bill that apparently uh, has, has has made it through at least one house here that uh, will force Apple and Google to allow external payment structures inside of apps. And we've talked about the Fortnite issue here in the past, but Apple and to a lesser extent Google, although their their agreements tend to be a little more flexible for developers, um, Apple and Google have rules that say that if you buy something through an app, so as an example of this, uh, you are buying... Um, uh, uh, a Fortnite uh, membership, Fortnite uh, uh, items, Fortnite uh, uh, stuff to be able to utilize as part of the game that they owe the the proprietor of the store 30% of that. And Fortnite at one point had created an alternative means, at least on iOS, I'm sorry, on Android to download the app separately to get around that so you'd install it as a non-Play Store app. But they got into a huge fight with Apple um, over that. And in fact, there are lawsuits that are ongoing to discuss the nature of this. And Arizona um, is saying that you have to allow third party purchasing um, uh, to, to happen. I've run into this personally um, in that the other day um, I wanted to watch a television show that was on broadcast television. The signal was not strong enough over the airwaves for me to watch the show. So I purchased a month of uh, YouTube TV. Um, which I buy a month at a time and I usually will use enough of it to justify the cost, but then I don't, I want to go away for a while because I don't watch that much live TV. Um, and I couldn't buy it on my iOS device because, um, uh, well, I'm assuming that's the reason why it's it. I could only sign in and and utilize the product. I could not purchase anything on the app. So I go to the website, buy a, a laptop. Um, and go to tv.youtube.com and purchase uh, a month's worth of service. So obviously very concerning from the standpoint of we cannot have 50 sets of rules for app stores across the 50 states. Um, but any thoughts about this, Dr. Fryer? Well, let's draw back on our civics and constitutional law background. This would be internet. This is inter, uh, interstate commerce, right? And so Congress has, the constitutionally delegated authority to regulate interstate commerce uh, for this kind of thing. So I don't, 
think this is going to change nationwide policy or international policy. Um, but it definitely, you know, gets attention and maybe this is something that could be taken up, uh, for federal legislation. I, I, I can't see how, you know, an individual state is, it's going to be upheld in the courts is going to be able to compel, uh, a multinational corporation to do something unique inside its borders. It just, I don't think that's how I'm not a lawyer, but I don't think that's how the regulation of, of interstate commerce works, but maybe I'm wrong. So. Well, and we talked about this a few weeks back with, I think it was a North Dakota bill that was going to, uh, compel Apple, um, to allow third party app stores on their devices, which, I mean, I would be totally against. It's a, a, a terrible security precedent and would likely create a very real security threat on that platform. But more importantly, I think what Apple would probably do, and that's probably true of the case of North Dakota, I think it's probably also true of the state of, of, of Arizona. They would simply say, well, I'm sorry, but these devices are no longer for sale uh, in these states. Sorry, North Dakota. Sorry, Arizona. Yeah. Uh, two more quick Apple articles, then maybe we can go to some Google ones. We got about 15 minutes left. Uh, all 270 U.S. Apple stores are open in the United States for the first time since March of 2020. This is from 9to5Mac on March the 1st. 2021. So it says in the article, not all of them are open for face-to-face browsing. Some of them are appointment only. Um, but that's a, that's a pretty big deal. We had actually gone in and purchased a Apple watch for our middle child, like the day before they happened to close. Are you sporting an Apple watch, sir? Whoa. And okay. We need, we need a full report on that. Yeah. Uh, what, one more, um, article there. Um, Apple has launched a service for transferring iCloud photos and videos to Google photos. So not everything, I guess, weirdly live photos don't. And when I, when I upload, I, I have my photos set to automatically back up to iCloud. And then also when I, I think I usually have to open the Google photos app, but it automatically uploads, but this will take all of your past stuff. And, um, you know, it's a, it could take like three to seven days, but I think that's probably a good thing. Remember app or Google is charging more for things. And I actually did have to sign up this last week. I don't know if it was because a Chromebook, you know, free terabyte or something like that expired or whatever, but I did have to sign up for a family plan for some Google storage here in the last week. But I think that's positive. You know, as someone who uses Apple devices and Google services, very glad to see these things, you know, working together well. Um, on, on On a similar note, I'll tell you, Jason, I helped a faculty member yesterday who needed to, he'd, he'd gotten a reinstalled OS, not on an M1, but on a, a earlier MacBook Air. And uh, Google Drive file stream is no more. It is now Google Drive, and it is um, still requiring the gatekeeper permissions. And he was on Catalina, and I had to, like, run a terminal command in order to allow the third-party, you know, uh, security permissions to be allowed and whatever. We got him up and running. Um, so anyway, I'm excited for that to happen, uh, in terms of M1. So you'll have that full Google drive desktop experience. Um, first impressions of the Apple watch. Uh, really good. Um, I did go with, a with the, the most recent generation. So this is a, a, a generation six. Um, I, it's, it, I did it for the health stuff. I mean, I, I, and, and it is absolutely amazing. Um, not only does it do very accurate, uh, um, uh, pulse. And so it can tell me what my heartbeat is. And obviously it does a really good job as a pedometer. 
Um, it also has some pretty extraordinary features when it comes to um, uh, taking other ratings. It can measure blood oxygen, which is super interesting. I don't know that that I would say that one I would question as being inaccurate because it's I've taken them. I've taken them five minutes apart and for the first one tells me that it's, um, it's really low. Like I should be in a coma low. And then the next one is it's totally fine. So from that standpoint, it's, um, uh, uh, it's probably a little wonky, but I cannot begin to describe how much I really love the health app on, on iOS. And the thing that I particularly love about it is that I've signed into all my systems that monitor uh, health. That includes my blood sugar since I have a constant glucose monitor and includes my, my medical information because it, it talks to uh, what's called my chart, which is the, the health data information system that all of my doctors use. Actually, in two of them, um, because I have two sets of doctors and two medical systems, because um, I have a, a, a transplant team in Seattle that has separate medical records. It talks to my Fitbit. And then it provides me extraordinary amounts of, of, of information that, um, it's, it, I, I'm, I'm surprised how great it is, to be honest. So, um, yeah, the Apple Watch is super great. The one thing I would say, just because I'm kind of, was kind of a snob about it, I bought the sports band because it was cheap and I knew you could change out the band and I've already purchased a leather band, a third party leather band for it. Um, the sports band is a lot nicer than it looks. Um, the, the rubbery plastic stuff is very hardy. It's not cheap feeling at all. I thought the sports band would be unpleasant. It's pretty great. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I understand why people stick with them. Yeah. And Peggy's saying the health app is terrific. Um, it is. Uh, we, we did a, a thing which I really fell off the wagon for called frozen feet, which was supposed to be walk a mile every day in February. And I did not do that during our Arctic blast, but it was good to have that encouragement and accountability for exercise. And we're continuing in March, but I opened up my Apple health app, which I had not done in quite a while. And realized, man, I got to set a bunch of stuff up because there's all these things that prompts you, you know, do you want to set this up? Do you want to allow access to this? And so, as we said before, this is, yes, it has privacy, you know, potential, but we're talking, Apple is putting privacy first and, and your data is uh, on a lot of this stuff is really on board. <clears throat> and there's a, there's some real sharp limits, I think, to the cloud-based access that people could have to this. Um, that is going to, you know, be an issue, but being able to have Literally, a better pulse of your health data is a very good thing. It can be a life-saving thing. Um, and so, yeah, that's uh, definitely something to encourage people to check out. Peggy says that her, her Fitbit, her Apple Watch, and her iPhone all buzz at the same time. So <laughs> there you go. Getting your attention, Peggy, making sure. All right. Uh, how about some Google News, sir? You got a couple articles in there. Uh, sure. Chromebooks. Yeah. So first, a couple great Chromebook articles from our friend Kevin Tofel over at uh, about Chromebook. First, he wrote a really great article on February 25th that is the he calls it the case for expensive Chromebooks. And it's actually something that I have talked about on the show in the past, that one of the reasons why I think Chromebook platforms oftentimes get such terrible reputations is because there are a lot of really what I would say, are low-end Chromebooks in the world. And while for in a lot of use cases, that can be a very useful phenomenon, the bottom line is um, 
uh, uh, your your experience is just so much better when you have hardware that is good slash great, right? And that's been my strategy. I own a cheap Chromebook. It's uh, an older Lenovo one uh, that's kind of my test one that I use when I want to find out what a student experience is, right? It's it's something that I use a lot in context of my day job. But my other Chromebooks um, are all high-end Chromebooks or medium to high-end Chromebooks because that experience is super awesome. And um, uh, uh, Mr. Toeful does a really great job of kind of going through the arguments about why Chromebooks were supposed to be cheap. He argues that's not to be the case. And in fact, that the notion that, that a Chromebook has to be cheap is, is really not the intent Google had when they released Chromebooks, um, uh, 11 years ago. Um, uh, the fact that you can do more on Mac OS or Windows for the same price. He doesn't dispute that, but he says that if you're looking for that, then go buy a Mac OS or a, a Windows machine instead. Although I would argue to you that chances are for $500, you can buy a higher end Chromebook hardware than you can uh, at least uh, uh, Apple and, and Windows hardware and do much more and have it feel much faster. Um, and, you know, he doesn't tell you you should buy a Chromebook over something else if you don't want a Chromebook, but stop kind of lowballing Chromebooks uh, that you're going to get a better user experience if the Chrome architecture is for you by buying a better Chromebook. And for schools out there looking to purchase Chromebooks, now is the time if you're looking for next year. Uh, oh, yeah. we, had a, we had a one-to-one meeting today, and I don't think I've shared this publicly on the show, but it is now uh, an announced fact. Uh, we are going to be all Chromebook for our middle school next year. Mm-hmm. And, um, we're, we're looking at Dell. Uh, Lenovo, if we were to order, I think is three months out or for as far as uh, receiving. And I think with Dell, we're like 45 days. Uh, so I'm actually interested in, uh, styluses for Chromebooks. And if anybody has experience with, you know, one to ones with, with styluses that have been awesome that the kids have loved. I think we're looking at a Dell 3120 or that was the one I had today. That's like this full yoga, you know, fold over touchscreen, uh, but didn't have a stylus. And so anyway, that's a, a personal interest. And if anybody's got <clears throat> any, anything to share on that, I would love to hear about it. Um, but I think maybe from a practical standpoint, just in terms of order, back order, et cetera, um, you know, we may be going with, with Dell products for, our, our Chromebook one-to-one. One thing I would note, Wes, is that there's a lot of coverage of this uh, over on um, uh, Chrome Unboxed, but uh, the USI stylus, which is a newer style stylus that most newer uh, stylus-compatible laptops are compatible with, so you may want to check that with the Dell that you're looking at. But the cool thing about USI USI Styli, I guess is the, the way to say that, uh, is that, um, it's, it's a universal standard. So if it comes with a stylus and the stylus gets lost, you can go replace that with, I think the Lenovo USI stylus is under 40 bucks, uh, as a replacement. And the USI stylus, uh, is, is pretty tight from my understanding. So just a thought there. Awesome. Sounds good. And let's see, uh, the other thing that's, that's kind of cool about Google, there's, there's two pieces here. First, you're going to notice this in the next version of either Chrome OS or the Chrome browser, but they're, they're keep making uh, it easier to swap between user profiles. And we've talked about this in the past, but I'm still surprised the number of even power users that don't understand that you can separate out your life really, really effectively by use, utilizing multiple user profiles in Chrome. 
Chrome. And in fact, right now I'm, I'm, I'm in a Chrome browser tonight on the show and I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight different Chrome profiles. Um, and, and I'm, I'm a different use case well, for almost everything. But in this particular case, because I have so many projects I work on that have separate Gmail or Google apps, I'm sorry, Google workspace accounts that I sign into. But one of the ways you can help divide up your personal life and, and your work life is just not to, not to sign into your work accounts, um, unless you're in a separate work profile. But Google's making that easier. And they're bringing to Chrome, I think it's Chrome 98, I think is the, is the, the version. Maybe it's 89, but, uh, something that has actually been a big thing in, um, 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 on the Mac with Safari, it's called, uh, it's called a reading list or a relater list. It's super cool. Um, uh, it, uh, it, it's a, basically a bookmark of articles that you can just set there temporarily to read later and then it syncs across your devices. Chrome had this on iOS platforms going back several, uh, uh generations of, of, of the browser, but now they're bringing that across all of their platforms. So if you save something on your desktop, for example, it'll be on your reading list on your mobile device. So that's super sweet too. I know last week you mentioned uh, the article about supervised YouTube for older kids and teens coming soon. Um, I dropped into our Google links, uh, something about family link. Family link is an app <clears throat> that you can download for iOS or for Android. Um, the title there on the website is help your family create healthy uh, digital habits. But in addition to screen time monitoring and stuff like that, um, this also allows parents to have some levels of monitoring and also limiting and restriction even on school-owned Chromebooks, from what I understand. And so the other link, and I'll put this in the show notes as well as keeping it here um, in the in our chat, is a link to 73 minutes and 45 seconds into last, I guess it was two weeks ago, the Learning with Google event. And that is the exact time where they talk about the Family Link app. So we're having lots of conversations about one-to-one and how we're going to be, you know, doing parent orientation and parent support. Uh, we've had parents ask, I've had them ask me directly, you know, well, what can I do with this Chromebook? You know, it's, it's school managed um, and we haven't had a lot of answers. So now it's good to know that <clears throat> Google, because of, of course, more devices than ever. Remember, I think we mentioned last week, Google went from like 40 million users of their educational G Suite, which is now Google Google Workplace, to like 130 million users in a year. So that's like a tripling in a single year. So they've been very responsive, listening to parents, listening to teachers, and Family Link is free, and it's definitely something to let your families know about. And if you've got kids or grandkids that are using Chromebooks in your house, you need to check that out. Um, hmm, interesting. Peggy says, did you see that? Reminds me of Woodland Park in Kalispell, Montana. Oh, she's talking about your background. Yeah. <laughs> Pe- 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 it's, you said it's a fountain. It's a spring. It remind yeah. So she, she, because remember, Peggy's got Kalispell, Montana roots. Uh, it is a, a giant spring state park in Great Falls, Montana, although, you know, a, about three hours away from there. So close. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, we are near the top of the hour. Actually, you're the one that is leading this charge, so I don't need to take over at this point. Um, anything that we want to hit 
and talk about quickly. Well, I think, I think my dad may still be listening in. So I'll mention this one. I, I texted this one to him. Uh, this is TechCrunch, March 3rd. Firms backed by Robert Downey Jr. and Bill Gates have funded an electric motor company that slashes energy consumption. Uh, this is a fascinating article. Um, and I was suggesting that he might talk with his investment club about this next. Oh gosh, that's a crazy long link. Um, so the, the name of the company is Turntide Technologies. And <clears throat> basically the article points out that pretty much every electrical motor is incredibly energy inefficient. Um, the operation of buildings worldwide accounts for about 40% of total CO2 emissions. And as probably most of us know, CO2 emissions are key drivers of climate change and the amount of carbon dioxide in the planet is really high. And it's really, you know, we not only are going to need to cut how much we're putting out, we're going to need to find ways to trap that. Uh, and there's ways that, you know, folks are working on that kind of thing, but uh, rather than use, and this is a real key point, um, the, the special metals and materials, I'm trying to think of what those are called that are like only available, uh, in China and you can't get those stateside. Um, they're not using any of those, you know, kinds of, of rare earth metals. That's the word. Um, because 90, China controls 95% of the global supply chain for rare earth metals. Um, they are using, uh, technology and algorithms to not send a constant stream of electricity to these motors, but to regulate that depending upon how much is needed at the time. And it apparently could have huge cost savings and also CO2 emission savings. So not we're not a stock show. Don't put all your retirement savings into whatever <laughs> Wes and Jason say on Wednesday night. Yeah. But I think that's pretty cool. And um, we'll see. Well, looking at my list, I think we could punt everything else for next week. So why don't we go into our Geeks of the Week? Sir, share, please. All right. Uh, mine is a personal website. So I have worked for the past four years with the chair of our English department, Whitney Finley, who uh, teaches a wonderful creative writing class to seniors who would like to create picture books for kids. And <clears throat> I love book creator. I love eBooks. I love kids recording their voices. So four years ago, we had the first group of kids that we um, helped use book creator and we, um, Oh, dad says turn ties, not public. So there you go. You're going to have to hold off on your investment. Um, <laughs> they, um, it's a lovely project because we don't, and probably most schools don't do a lot of interchange between, let's say, high schoolers and, and kindergartners or pre-K kids. And so uh, during non-COVID years, after the kids have created these books, um, not only making them as ebooks, but printing them um, on demand as paperback and in some cases hardcover through lulu.com. And I'm, I get to help facilitate that process. The kids have a lovely visit over to our, our primary building where the pre-K and K kids are and they read the books to them and, and it's wonderful. Now, what's so cool about ebooks, of course, is we can have all these books on the teacher's iPads. And for the last two years, uh, Whitney has, has required all the students to record their voices. So you have the kids reading their books in their voices. It's just really, really awesome. So anyway, you can access access it on this website. And if you're not familiar with Book Creator, shout out to them. <clears throat> they just continue to uh, innovate on their platform. I absolutely love the web-based platform that allows you to see the whole library and you are able to 
um, just directly click and read the book. And then you can also download the EPUB. You can even order the lulu.com version if you're, if, if you want to. But some of our <clears throat> kids are very, very gifted, not only in terms of their writing, but their art as well. And they've done some incredible original art in some cases. Um, and so they're just beautiful. So it's a great project, great multidisciplinary project. And it's certainly a wonderful one to share. Uh, because if you're not doing something like this at your school where kids are creating books and they're sharing it, even just, uh, you know, across the building or across the district or, or campus or whatever, it, uh, it's a wonderful thing. Yay, writing and authorship. How about you, Dr. Neifer? Well, I'm sharing something that I learned based on an article that said today I learned. This is from the Virgin of Mars first. I, I, this functionality is so slick that I'm, I'm surprised that I haven't heard more about it, but there's a really great thing on Mac, uh, uh OS devices. So Mac laptops, Mac desktops, uh, iMacs, where if you've got an iPhone and you're signing in all the same accounts, you can go into a lot of places in the operating system. And when you want to put in an image, all you need to do is right click and you can actually scan directly onto your phone. And so I tried it um, on Sunday. Um, or I'm sorry, on Monday when I first read this article and I opened up preview, which is the, the PDF reader. And I was able to, to, uh, uh, input from the phone. All I had to do is click on the button. It automatically turns the camera on. It does the thing that a lot of cool scanning apps do that it automatically detected pages and then, uh, you know, turn them into square pages. And I was able to create a three page PDF in about 30 seconds, uh, just from scanned documents. And so, uh, if you're not aware of that, it's one of the great benefits of the Mac. Uh, ecosystem is that all this stuff talks together or works together really, really, really well. And these devices talk to one another, their directions are in the verge. Very good. Well, Wes, where can people find you on the internet? I am W Fryer on Twitter. My blog is speedofcreativity.org, but the best place to go would be westfriar.com slash after. And there are, a rather embarrassingly large number of links that you can find where I share things uh, to include some food recipes from time to time and various and other sundry things related to technology. How about you, Dr. Neifer? I'm on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach. That's basically where I'm at. You can also find my website at Neifer, N-E-I-F-F-E-R.com, but Twitter is the best place to go. But this here isn't about, uh, well, it is about us individually, but we're together make up the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once-a-week podcast where we go through the issues of the week. We are available in lots of locations. You can go to wherever finer podcasts are aggregated. We also broadcast over YouTube and Facebook. You can uh, go to our website, edtechsr.com, and download tiny MP3s you prefer to listen that way. Or you can join Peggy George every Wednesday live in our chat room to see us broadcast this out live. We hope you can join us live. If not, always download a copy later. Uh, we thank you for listening to this episode. We encourage you to stay safe and stay savvy. We'll see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Everybody hold up your Apple Watch. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs>